and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host Rob Lamorgis. Who is currently torturing tomatoes to prove that they feel pain. But you could still eat them, right? Oh, that makes the pain more enjoyable. Oh. <laughs> Today is episode seven in our Get Me Another, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage series. And this week, we'll be exploring two Gialli from director Aldo Lado. Lado started his career as an assistant working with filmmakers such as Bernardo Bertolucci and Dario Argento. In fact, he may have had a significant input into the crafting of the story for The Bird with the Crystal Plumage as he was working with Argento at the time. It all depends on who you ask. Also, a few years later in 1979, Lado made the sci-fi adventure film The Humanoid, which we covered in our Get Me Another Star Wars series, and we're both surprised at how much we liked. That is episode two of Get Me Another Star Wars, if you want to go check it out. Yeah, uh, Chris. Yeah. I've, I've realized two separate things at this point in the... Bird with the Crystal Plumage series. Oh, by all means. Number one, I think the top five everything for the podcast is now going to be populated exclusively by Italian actors, <laughs> directors, writers, and Ennio. Ennio is now like... Oh, Ennio's probably, done more movies that we've like covered. He probably like Jerry Goldsmith plus someone else plus someone else. At this Seriously. Point. Yo, it's, yeah, it, it, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. The other thing I've realized is that much like, you know how there's that point in a Giallo movie where the lead kind of has lost their mind? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. That is where <laughs> I have been driven to. At this point in this series, Chris, I, as we become clear when we're talking about these two movies, I don't know what reality is anymore, Chris. I am living life in a fever dream and I'm rounding corners where I'm like, there's a mirror image of myself and it shatters and I don't know what's going on. Well, I mean, you know, that's, that's what the Giallo does for you. I mean, it's, it's, you have become, you have become that which you explore and that which you explore has become you. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. When you stare into the abyss. Yes. Uh, We begin today with Aldo Lato's directorial debut, 1971's Short Night of Glass Dolls. That is not sufficient proof when you say the girl was wearing nothing when she left. And yet I've known it to happen that someone suddenly decides to move out. They leave. There's no warning and no argument. Let me say this to you. They'd better because I'll write a story and blast every last one of you for murder. Why did you say murder? And the part that beats me is how the hell you could care for someone like her. You know that both you and the girl took drugs. You're lucky. She's not in a morgue with a broken neck. Who did it? Do you know him? They don't fly. They don't let them fly. 
Short Night of Glass Dolls was written by Aldo Lado and Rudiger von Spies, which is too awesome to be an actual real name. I mean, it's just, it's fantastic. I wouldn't say anything or Rudiger's going to track you down. <laughs> yeah, Rudiger doesn't, doesn't play, my man. No. <laughs> I'll watch my back for Rudiger. <laughs> Yeah. It stars John Sorrell, who listeners may remember from A Lizard in a Woman's Skin, as well as Ingrid Thulin, Mario Adorf, and Barbara Bach. Uh, let's say at the outset, this is a very unusual film, and you can feel that director Aldo Lada was really trying to break the model a little bit. There's no black glove killer at work. In fact, many of the giallo hallmarks are largely absent, although we do have a terrific score from Ennio Morricone, as you mentioned. The film is set in Prague, at a time when Czechoslovakia, the then existing country of Czechoslovakia, was under communist rule. And at this time in the early 70s, the period of protest and reform, known as the Prague Spring, was only a few years in the rear view. The Prague Spring ended in August of 1968, when the Soviet Union and other Warsaw Pact countries invaded Czechoslovakia and clamped down on the country's liberalization. That is the historical background that I, I give to you for this film, and I think it has significance, in, at least in the subtext of the film. Well, this is a movie where subtext and text just kind of merge into something, and I'm not quite sure what it is. Text. Uh, <laughs> but here's my background for this movie. And look, we have seen a lot of great European cities sure. on location uh, at this point, right? Yeah. Uh, many, many in Italy, but even beyond. For some reason, Prague was the one, again, that broke me. It made me realize, Chris, that American cities are bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you look at Prague and it is fucking amazing. And I'm, I, why, why am I in a city filled with strip malls that get turned over every five years? Like, it's true. No, it, Prague's amazing. I just, I just want some stonework for God's sakes. I do, I do. I will say this: I do like color in my cities. So the the the, the, the Prague, <laughs> the Prague of Short Night of Glass Dolls is a kind of like gray brownish. It's just yeah. I I don't think that's the city, Chris. <laughs> I. <laughs> because you did mention this was his directorial debut, correct? It was. It was indeed. These were his first two films. And, well, I think you feel it here because he clearly did not have the same amount of money from the backers from even the lower budget uh, movies that we've looked at to date for in the Giallo series. That is absolutely true. It, it, the, the hospital set looks like it's something, it, it, it does not look like a hospital A. And well, that's B. how a communist hospital would have been. Uh, you know, it's behind the Iron Curtain. It looks like the production office was redressed to be shot on camera. And <laughs> oh. the, like the lighting is just, it looks like the lighting philosophy for this was is it visible? <laughs> which, which, which wasn't always successful. I won't lie to you. No, there's times there, in this movie times. where that's not, they yeah. don't beat that bar. Uh. Yeah. I mean, this thing looks like it was lit by a low budget American. Cause everything is just overlit and flat. Most yeah. of the time, uh, as opposed to a European, uh, cinematographer, it was very surprising, but in any case, this is all, I think a lot of that, um, you know, to be fair, I think it, it clearly the budget level on this thing is is vastly lower. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely true. And 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 we'll we'll you know it's an interesting movie. I will say this: it's it's an interesting movie. It doesn't all quite work, but it's not 
it's not boring. It's, 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 well, sometimes it is. I don't know. It's, <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I, it, my, my Rosetta Stone for this is that I am inventing a new sub genre of Giallo. Oh. I think this is norm core giallo. Oh my God. It wants to, it's constantly telling me that it's a twisted psychological tale, but it is so ordinary (laughs) at its core. Like there's not, it just, it wants to be twisted, but it can't help to be a dad in pleated uh, (laughs) slacks, you know? He's in his, he's in his chinos. Yes. We open on a quiet morning in Prague when a street cleaner finds the body of a man in a flower bed. The man, American journalist Gregory Moore, appears dead, and the cleaner calls for an ambulance. Now, while he's doing that, there's this disabled man on a wooden plank with wheels that he has watched the body. It's very there's a lot of weird details in this that are are inexplicable. <laughs> like, yeah, and and then there's the little bit where he's you know, he thinks the other guy thinks that he did the killing and he said, I just found the body. I just found Call the, body. the police. Yeah. The other guy said nothing. We don't even know if the other guy can say anything. I don't know if he talks. He just he's there on his plank. Yeah, well, I they didn't have the budget for him to talk, Chris. Because <laughs> even in Prague, that's gonna pay extra in that's 68. True. Or whatever, 70, 71. 71. I, I, 71. No. It's another 71 movie. I mean, so many movies from 71. My goodness. Um, there's, there was, I actually was reading earlier today, there was something like 30 Gialli released in 1971 in the wake of Bird with the Crystal Plumage. We've gotten some of them, but like there's there's more that you just can't. I mean, you just can't. Uh, honestly, that number seems low to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> As the body arrives at the hospital, we learn that apparently Gregory's brain is still active as we hear like the internal monologue of what's going on in his head. Dead? I'm dead? Can't be. I'm alive. And you tell I'm alive? I've got to make them see. You. Listen to me. Look at me. Can't you hear me? Maybe it's a nightmare. If I try, I wake up. And I, I've got to move. Get a finger. I, I can't. I, I can't. I must. Don't leave me like this. Help me. Help me. And it's really curious. It's interesting. It's kind of like the movie feels like a combination of Eyes Wide Shut, The Hangover, and an episode of House that guest starred Moe's death in which he has to, to, to you know, he's he's locked into his head. And that's the name of that episode, Locked In, where he he's, you just hear his internal monologue. So it's it's Eyes Wide Shut, The Hangover, and an episode of House. And, and that the the conceit of the VO also reminded me of uh, what DOA. Although in that one, that one it's the actual dead body. Yeah, absolutely, you know. absolutely. And it's that's so like the movie kind of consists of flashback scenes as he's kind of going back through his own mind to learn what it is that happened to him. Um, and I'm not again; those flashbacks basically consist of what we would call now the shoe leather detective scenes that we've become accustomed to over the series, where he just goes from one place, talks to somebody, 
learns barely anything, and then goes to another place. Yeah, I mean, I like the idea of the the wrapper and the conceit of this thing, and it is helpful because we know that he is at least incapacitated enough that a lot of people think he is dead. Right. Because you'd mentioned this Giallo breaks many conventions. Oh, yeah. One of them being that there really is not much killing in this at all. No. And so having that knowledge that our lead is going to wind up on a slab in a morgue right? in whatever form, that is providing a lot of the attention because obviously we know this and poor Gregory, American journalist, does not. Does not. No, absolutely. Uh, Greg is in love with a beautiful young woman named Mira, played by Barbara Bach, and he hopes to take her with him when he goes back to the West. Uh, he has two primary co-workers at the newspaper office that he works in, the affable and perpetually drinking Jacques, and Gregory's former <laughs> lover, Jacques. is fantastic. Jacques. He is the all-star of this one for me. But that's Oh, just... my God. First of all, <laughs> let, let, about Jock, before we get to Jessica, who is his former lover, Jock is is a big guy. He's got a big beard. And the and, and, and this may have played differently in when it was in Italian, but whoever dubbed his voice is doing the most stereotypical stage Irish accent right out of The Quiet Man. He is one Faith and Begora away from being Chief O'Hara from Batman. Like, it's hysterical. Yeah, it, it, it is a strong choice. But, uh... <laughs> it's a strong choice. I endorse that choice for, yes. for all that goes with it. I, I, it's amazing. Jessica, for her part, has the most extensive collection of headscarves that I have ever seen in any motion picture. She's constantly wearing uh, these these uh, very elaborate and and beautifully patterned headscarves, and that's well, that's it. That, that and she's kind of pissed off that uh, Greg threw over for uh, for Barbara Buck. Uh, Greg picks up Mira at a train station, and she gives him a gift of a framed collection of beautiful but dead butterflies, which I've never been given that by anybody. And frankly, I hope I never am. That's uh, not something I want to hang on my wall. If anyone's thinking they were not bloodstained. They were not. They were not. And then, uh, but, but. And then she also got him at the airport gift shop a little plush Donald Duck, <laughs> as well as... <laughs> Some black lace gloves. Well, it's <laughs> funny you should mention that because the original title of this film was Short Night of the Butterfly. Because uh, presumably the bloodstained butterfly had already gotten to the butterfly theme Gialli, which came out the same year. So they had to change it at the last minute. And as the story goes, the words glass dolls was chosen as a substitute because it took up the same amount of space on the poster. Oh, this makes so much more sense because if you watch the movie... There's no glass dolls of any kind! I mean, there's a chandelier that I was thinking, is that weird slang for the... (laughs) That? (laughs) There is a a chandelier of import in this film. There's There's a grand chandelier, absolutely. Yes, Uh, It doesn't Phantom of the Opera or anything, so don't worry, I'm not spoiling too much. (laughs) But, okay, yeah, the the title of this movie makes, or the English title of this movie makes absolutely no sense. None. There's no glass dolls. It's just, I mean, and I guess we're used to titles that are sort of, you know, stretching it to, you know, know, there there was was no Cat Cat O'Nine Tales. Tales, I'm looking at you. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> Uh, also, I'm not sure that the night was that short either. This seems like a really long night. <laughs> it's, really, yeah. it's 90 minutes, but man, it makes you feel it. I, it's Jesus. Well, I, I, it's one of those movies that I always call, it is uh, temporally economical in that they made the shortest feature film possible, but it feels like a three hour epic. Yes. <laughs> absolutely true uh it, part of that time is like the first act greg is just spending time with mira in prague and and i do i i will say you get a sense of the bleakness of soviet dominated eastern europe i mean again i mentioned the color spectrum of this movie runs from gray to brown uh honestly there's i guess nothing more romantic in prague than to play hide and seek with your loved one in a graveyard and, and this is just where, I mean, the pacing is molasses. It's like, what happened to the speed and economy of the bird with the crystal plumage? Yeah, and, and I want to point out, while you are 100% correct about this color palette, when you watch the movie, uh, listeners in podcast land, there are colors. So there, like the, there's a train that is green. They go to eat at a restaurant where yes. it's predominantly red, except... It's not actually green and it's not actually red. Now, I don't know if this is just a a cheaper, lesser one. And so the colors are all faded on the print and it needs a restoration job or what. But every even the even green looks brown, I guess yeah. is what I'm saying here. Yeah. Yes. In, the, in this movie. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I yeah, it's uh, oh, and by the way, in a bit of on the nose foreshadowing, Greg tells Mira that every time that they meet, he's scared he's going to lose her. I got bad news for you, Greg. Yeah, and you know what else is foreshadowing? It's a little more subtle. Is when they're on their date and they frolic in a fucking graveyard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's why I guess that's what you do in Prague. It's a. Uh... Greg and Mir go to a party where they hobnob with Prague's elite. Uh, Greg describes them as famous personalities in Eastern Europe and, and quote, politicians, bankers, queers, and black marketeers, which honestly sounds like an album title. I don't know from whom, but it's just great. Oh, T-Rex. That would be a yeah. T-Rex album <laughs> title for sure. Yes, yes, done and done. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Um, I have to mention in this scene, as they're going to this party, Greg's got a tie on, which is oh. upsetting to me because it's not <laughs> its not a bow tie. It's not a bolo tie. It's some unholy hybrid of the two. And I'm like, I don't even know what it is. I don't know what it is, but he's wearing it on his neck and it's actually upsetting. This is what they issued to American journalists in the 70s. Right. It's vaguely Colonel Sanders-esque, vaguely Doc Holliday. Yes, uh, but not quite either. You have yeah. to let him know that he's an American. There you go. It's the, it's the, it's the Colonel Sanders, Doc holiday tie it's, it's just the worst um jessica's there at the party she's angry that uh you know that 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 he's down with mira and she's 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 bitter about it i suppose uh jock has brought his latest girlfriend oh this is really something the hippie oh, yes. chick who is literally so stoned out of her mind she just stares silently up against the wall as he literally squeezes her breast in public and i'm just like what is what is happening? I will say the party feels like an actual nightmare. Again, this is transgressive in that it is a giallo party I want no part of. 
which no. is very against type for a giallo movie. And yeah, Jacques is, is, uh, oh, it, it's so weird. He's, it, it's almost like he's even failing at being lecherous here where <laughs> it's just, oh. it's quite bad. Yeah. It's, it's, it's something. So they go to this party and, and apparently Mira is the hit of the party. There's people talking to her and surrounding her and th- there's all that. And, and later that and night, they, surrounding they, her, like literally like surrounding yes. it is, it is, they are. They are. They yeah, are into her. I mean, it's Barbara foreboding. Bach. Barbara foreboding. Barbara She's a Bond girl. She married Ringo yeah, Starr. The vultures are. Uh, the vultures are circling for sure. In this, it's it's no. If you hadn't already been told by the character that she was going to go away, essentially, you would know from this. It is exactly exactly. And, and later that night, Greg, that he's 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 home with her, and he gets a call from Jacques telling him of like the suicide or possible murder of a senior party official. And so Greg goes out to meet Jacques, and oops, false alarm! It was just a grocer with the same name. And it's like okay. Oh, and by the way, Jacques' date, whatever she took, has now worn off because she seems totally fine at this point. She's just she's chatting and you know it's all it's all good. Yeah, which I guess why is Jacques is now suddenly treating her as if she's kind of a human being. Um, <laughs> yeah, yes. not doing what he was doing earlier. Yes. Oh my god. Uh when Greg returns to his apartment though, Mira is gone. Just gone. Her clothes are still there, her passport's still there, she's gone. So the next section of the movie is the search for Mira, as you might expect. Yeah, but when he gets home and I, I just, look, I most frequently try to call out the direction and visual style when it's stuff that I like. But I think I have to talk about this as a specific example of the limitations in this film. Sure. Uh, I'm sure some of it is it's, it, was, it was his first rodeo, but a lot of it's also the money. Uh, so, I, like, they clearly did not have time for tons of setups, tons yeah. of takes, right? Which is sure. a, a big deal. So when he comes back... Gregory to find her, you know, her missing. What you get is you get a close up of him and then you get a POV shot and it's quick cutting yep. between the two, which isn't terrible. But then you're pretty much just in his POV, but it's a wide shot of the of the room that I would say covers about 85% of what that room is. <laughs> and then it just pans slightly so you can see that other 15% like he's really checking the room. And <laughs> Just make sure she's not behind the night table. <laughs> the idea here being that you, this is not how you would frame it at all in order to get kind of like put you in his frantic visual search of the room. Uh, it's like the slowest pan in the world on top of it all. Anyway, I I, I don't mean to, 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 to be mean or anything, but it's just this to me is indicative this and the color palette, as we've mentioned, I think uh, the, the lack of the best locations possible in Prague, it's, it's all very lacking in the usual Giallo style, Absolutely. which is one of the things that I come to these for personally, I've, I've discovered. Uh, no, that's a hundred percent. I agree a hundred percent. I should mention that all the time that, that this investigation, the flashbacks are going on periodically, we cut back to 
you know, sort of dead Greg in the present day in the hospital in there. They're ch- and clearly he's not dead because, like, they keep saying things like he's a little – his temperature hasn't gone down the way they, accept, yes. they expect the body's temperature to have gone down. There's clearly stuff going on, but he's just like a voice, a disembodied voice in his own head. And those parts are are some of my fa- – I mean, they probably are my favorite in, in the film. They actually um... – for me work very well, even with the limitations, uh, yeah. I guess, cause it's, you're usually bound in one room anyway, and it makes sense for the story. Totally. And then there, there's a little treatment on the voiceover that makes it a little uh, creepier, a little hollowness to it. Yeah. And, and a friend, a doctor friend of Greg's comes in and examines him and he determines that rigor mortis has not set in yet. So he decides to attempt and I quote reanimation. Man, there was some real ahead of the curve science happening behind the Iron Curtain in the 70s that we did not know about here in the West if they even could attempt reanimation. <laughs> it's true. But my favorite part of this runner, the 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 you know, the the container story, if you will, there's that one assistant doctor or morgue <laughs> yeah. guy who yeah. clearly kind of just wants to go home and at every turn (laughs) no matter what the medical like oh the body temperature hasn't dropped down this guy's essentially saying eh he's probably dead let's just can we just stop now he is one guy (laughs) who talks he's like oh i think i might want those shoes but he doesn't take them because he doesn't want to lose his job yes there is some there is some great stuff with the the more guys and just they're like general like uh i just want to go home i'm done for the day um, so back in the flashback realm, there's, he, Greg gets a call that the body of a young girl has been found down by the river, but that turns out to be a red herring because it's just another girl. And Greg, along with Jessica decides this is their plan. They decide to go and talk to all the people that Mirrors spoke to at the party, which gives the opportunity for some shoe leather investigation. And honestly, as a line of investigation goes, it feels Thin, very thin. Yeah. Do you remember in old cartoons and comic strips where they would have a caricature of a hobo? Sure. Who would have an old shoe where the toe split and then yep. they would make boot soup. <laughs> that is what I felt like. I was eating boot soup for this portion of the movie. I was tasting every. Every centimeter of shoe oh, leather yeah. was going yeah. down hard. Oh, they 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 find they go to the they go to the house of one Professor Carding, who is engaged in a scientific experiment determining that a tomato can feel pain. Taste pain. Human beings separate all matter into classes. The world isn't made that way. Everything alive has its senses, its own vitality. There's nothing wonderful about this tomato feeling just as sensitive to pain as we do. And that's amazing. I wish it went more. I was like, oh, I kind of want to watch the movie about that. When he squishes that tomato with his bare hands, <laughs> like, and it's not in anger. No. It's, it's sadistic. He it, is, it is making is. the he's, tomato feel he's, pain. He's clearly a bad dude. He's like, oh, tomatoes can feel pain. Let me show you. And you keep cutting to the tomato meter, right? Where the, <laughs> the needle screams in pain for the tomato every time. And it is, it's honestly 
probably more tense than most of the stuff with human beings. <laughs> it really is. And there was some weird stuff happening behind the Iron Curtain in the 70s. Uh, Although, tells- they were they were totally competent because it was, oh, yeah. I think, a little before this because Gregory wants to help them. Unlike every other Giallo movie, the police here are professionals and they say, don't fuck up our investigation. No, and and they think that Gregory is the prime suspect, as he probably would be. It's usually the boyfriend, yeah. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. no, it's... it's, um, Professor Carding says to Greg that he was talking to Mira at the party and she said she was thinking of going to Moscow. Now, how she was going to do that without her passport, Professor, I don't know. Doesn't seem likely. But there's a painting on Carding's wall of a woman lying on a platform surrounded by other people. The camera focuses on that in a way that cannot be happenstance. I'm just saying. Yeah, it, it's male gaze, but for obvious clues, is what I would say. It's it's narrative gaze, or I'm not. What, what it's so weird. This? There's so much weird, like inappropriate breast groping in this movie. Like he goes to the library to investigate the like other disappearances of other girls, and there's these two like there's a man, a woman in the stacks making out, and the guy's he, she's oh he's yeah just, he's just grabbing her boob, and it, it doesn't seem like non-consensual it's not like the Jacques and his drugged up girlfriend where she doesn't know what the hell's going on this just seems like hey we've picked the library for our uh for our makeout session to be fair there's really no one there except this weirdo american <laughs> journalist who's decided he can solve crimes now <laughs> <laughs> that's all of that's true yeah that it's fair that's a fair point like it's at this point in the movie that like I started to not be able to tell the difference between red herrings and just general weirdness. Like I was, I was falling into this movie mentally by this point. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what I'm doing here. By the time we get to the library, I think it's been a good 10 minutes before I really understood why I was anywhere in this movie. <laughs> it just feels like, and again, Look, I, I've said it once, I've said it again, you know, I, uh, some of them to do this to different degrees. You know, if they tell me that this is, there was a clue that led them there, I go, okay, a clue led them here. Great. I, I have no idea what, I don't know why. They go see the blind guy and I have no idea. Like it's, 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 it's Greg and Jessica. They go see the blind guy and I have no idea how they got there. I have no idea what brought them there, except that this guy's blind and he's saying cryptic things like all of our youth must be sacrificed to preserve those in power. I'm like, okay, that's weird. Oh, totally weird. And, and it's at this point that I wonder, you're not going to take things from the giallo genre like murders <laughs> or violence, but you're going to add a blind guy. You're going to have a box of butterflies. It's You're... <laughs> Uh, I really, it feels like they're taking the wrong lessons, Chris. <laughs> I mean, and that, oh, the one concrete thing, the one concrete thing that he learns is that all the girls who have been disappearing in Prague really dug music. It's pretty fucking thin. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, as opposed to all those beautiful young women who hate music and hate dancing. Yes. <laughs> Greg gets a message from from an old man that he was unable to get in to see earlier, and and he gets word to meet the man at a train yard at night, so I'm sure everything will be fine. 
And sure enough, Greg, before you can meet the guy, the guy's pushed over the railing of a bridge and his dying words are, they don't die. Or, or maybe they don't lie. Uh, it, I think it turns out they don't fly, but I honestly, Rob, it was really tough to hear what the fuck he was saying. Uh, all I know is took the Chevy to the levee. <laughs> <laughs> Levy was dry, I think. I think were his uh, next words, yes. That good old boy was drinking whiskey and rye. Uh, so uh, it's just, oh, but the guy does have a, a card in his pocket for a place called Club 99. Uh, that's, folks, that's Club with a K because we're in Eastern Europe, not with a C. Yeah, this isn't the place at Disneyland. This is not the Disneyland Club <laughs> at all. No. Oh. Or is it? I, I would love a Giallo set there. Uh, I bet Disney would not love a Giallo set there. <laughs> oh my God. You'd never, you'd never a million years. Oh, and you've got the mouse thing too. Like the the long <laughs> squeak of the mouse. Oh, or the black glove. It's the white gloves of, of Mickey Mouse who's who kills Don, Don, It's Did you just call it Don't Torture Donald Duckling? Yeah. The, <laughs> the dark mouse of the white gloves. There we go. <laughs> Oh, White gloves of the dark mouse. There oh. we go. So, it, it, honestly, the movie starts to pick up when when Greg goes to Club Ninety Nine, and it just it just takes a while to get there, and because it, it, it's literally like an hour into this this hour and a half film, and Club Ninety Nine is a chamber music society where all the members look like they just stepped out of Carnival of Souls. Yes. And it's it's not long. You know, Greg goes in there. He's kind of doing recon. He gets inside. But it's not long before Club 99's hunchback janitor realizes that Greg doesn't belong there. And, and he tells his master that, who he literally calls master, uh, that it's because of his fancy Western style shoes. But I think it's because Greg doesn't look dead. All the people in Club 99 look dead. You know, for a supposed investigative journalist, this guy is terrible at his job. <laughs> He's there is good. no blending in. No. Uh, no. It, I swear it's, it's he, he may as well have just gone up to people and said, are there dead people here? Are you murdering people? <laughs> are you murdering young girls here at Club 99? I hear, I hear the, the girl murdering's good at a place like this, yeah. <laughs> He hides in this dark room with this massive chandelier that we mentioned earlier before escaping. But if he had only looked in one room more, he would have seen Mira's nude body covered in flowers in another in another room. Thankfully, he didn't open that door. Yeah, no. Uh, why would you open doors at a place that you're searching for <laughs> For clues? missing women, including your, yeah. your missing girlfriend. Um, Greg meets with Jacques, who tells him that he's, this is the one of the weirdest scenes, where Jacques tells him that he's sick of Greg pining over Mira, and he kind of mock confesses to the murder, and I'm just like, what? Like, who would act like that? That's, like, this girl has been a missing for, like, a couple of days, tops? It's like, you know, like, come on, Jacques, show a little sensitivity. I know who would act like that. A guy who would drug up a girl and feel her up at a party. Well, that's probably it. Yeah. This is a terrible creep. He's a creep. Yeah. Even though his stage Irish accent makes him one of the more like, interesting characters in the film. Just in the movie. Yeah. Uh, well, he's got a thing at least. 
I guess. Yeah, he's <laughs> got a thing. Yeah, and and, and so meanwhile, the, the, they go in, in, in the present. The reanimation doesn't work. But Professor Carding shows up and helpfully, very helpfully, offers to autopsy the body the next day during his anatomy lecture. Nice guy. Hey, you know, hey, let's let not let a body go to waste. I'll cut it up as part of my anatomy lecture and everything will be fine. Yeah, and it's, it's it's at this point that everything in this movie is starting to smell fishy uh, <laughs> because the red herrings have been piling up and up and up no uh, and they're now the about herrings. to topple they're about to topple down into a literal orgy. Literal, actual literal orgy. So so back in the flashbacks Greg sleeps with Jessica cuz I guess he really has gotten over Mira pretty quick. Um and uh and and you know she 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 keeps going on about how Mira's wrong for him. And I'm like, lady, she's already missing and you just fucked him. Give it a rest. Like let him let him mourn. You you've you've got what you wanted. Like Meanwhile, Jock calls Greg to tell him that he has learned that Club 99 is both A, an international organization with chapters all over the world, and B practices black magic. <laughs> Yeah. 99 means amen. Finished. The end. That's what he says. And I'm just like, I, so it's, 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 it's a, it's a black magic organization disguised as a chamber music society. I don't know. Boy, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> but he's gotta be right. Cause as soon as Jacques hangs up, he's murdered in the telephone booth. Yeah. I always knew the harpsichord was satanic, Chris. <laughs> I mean, we all knew that. Which actually, the harpsichord. That, that, to be fair though, um, it's not satanic. It's black magic. This is actually it's not true. satanic. That so is true. I want to. I want to take that back. Make that. that right make there. that. Yes. Yes. That distinction. Correction. Yeah. It's. It's so. So Jacques is immediately murdered in the telephone booth after giving this information. Greg goes down and finds blood on the receiver, the phone booth, and then then he just kind of he just kind of wanders around Prague for a while. Just kind of wanders through the streets of Prague and. And he stops to listen to a musical interlude from a street busker who happens, just happens to be singing about butterflies. Now, Rob, I am not saying that you can't have music in a horror film. One of my all-time favorites, The Wicker Man, the original Wicker Man, is got, it's, it's practically a musical. There's so many songs in it. It's amazing. But here, you have, it just stops the movie cold as we're going into the third act as he sits and listens to this busker on the bridge in Prague singing about butterflies and I just like uh, there we are I'm like eh, let's get to the third act yeah I mean and these are the things that it feels like he's trying to break the mold and do something that to him feels more artistic or something it but it just uh, it doesn't come together Make the movie. Tell the story. Tell the story. So Greg, he gets thrown in the river and then is fished out of the river by the cops. And the cops tell him they think he's had that he's a drug addict and he accidentally killed killed Mira with a drug overdose, which frankly is the most plausible thing I've heard so far. Which is why it's incorrect in this film. <laughs> yeah. A man named Valinsky arrives and takes charge of Greg and he takes him home and he's the, the head of Club 99. And Greg wants to go there, um, but the guy just takes Greg home. And when Greg gets home, he opens up his refrigerator and he finds Mira dead inside. So she's been fridged. She's like Mockingbird in Marvel Comics. She's been fridged. 
She's dead, and and that's that. And Greg almost shoots himself, but then he decides to escape before the cops arrive. I don't know why the cops let him go in the first place if they were going to show up as an apartment a few fucking minutes later. Yeah. The important thing is, with Mira stuffed in that fridge, there's no room for the milk no. at all. So it can be out to be injected with poison. <laughs> um well, if you keep your milk in a bag, you know. <laughs> so I think we should put our spoiler line here because we're actually getting to the end of uh, our, our bit on uh, on short night of glass dolls. Uh, so if you if you don't want to know how it ends, and and I, I'll lie, I don't understand it entirely myself. But if you are if you want to remain completely unspoiled about it, you can clip to the next chapter and and we'll get into uh, who saw her die, which I honestly understood more, but not entirely. Yeah, yeah. No, who saw her die was like normal giallo confusing to me. Right. Exactly. Yes. Here. So Greg returns to Club 99 where he finds a ritual taking place and all the members of the club are on the floor engaged in a massive orgy. Uh, And they are they are on the older side. So and 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 uh, you see it all. Hey, listen. Hey, they're having a good time, and that's not. I'm not for me to judge, but, oh, yeah, yeah. This, um, I have to say, because leading into the end, there, it's going for a whiz bang ending that's going to knock your socks off. I don't feel that it completely does it, but from here on out, I at least I can see what they're going for, and a yes. lot of it is kind of cool. Yes, including this, which is. It reminded me of the best parts of like uh, the the naked the nakedness in like Lords of Salem, the Rob Zombie sure. movie. Yep, a little bit of society thrown in there for good measure. Obviously, this was well before either of those two movies, and, and it's just there is something uh, I think off putting, even though it's natural about uh, seeing bodies that clearly look like they are toward the end of life engaging in such uh appetites i would say because this isn't just like this is not loving romantic sex this is like fucking this is an orgy of old people fucking and it is like raw you know it is is raw no it's it provides an impact though like in a way that nothing else has so far it was it was it was uh, it was something i mean that's that's true (laughs) Uh, in the center of the room appears to be Mira lying on a platform co- being covered in oil. And there's a man with very large ornate glasses performing some kind of ritual. And Valinsky shows up and he tells Greg, it's not Mira, that she was a rebel who refused sex and gold. Rob, if they offer you sex and gold, don't say no. You know, that's 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 the bottom line is 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 that's that's the, the sex and gold. Um, I didn't, I for one didn't realize those things were on the table. Uh, Chris, <laughs> I still have no idea <laughs> what Club 99 really is, what it does. No idea. No, no, no. Uh, I, 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 I see the sensual enjoyment they have, but like what exactly, what got turned down such that it necessitated uh, the murdering? Did did they get anything out of the murder? Was that part of a black magic ceremony that got them more power? I, I just don't know. Well, that's the thing is I, I, okay. He goes on to explain that the missing girls are used as bait and that they suppress the will to resist. And, and, and Greg is told that the oldest people 
beat the drum and the youngest go to battle and that they will hold the reins of power in the world as long as there are people willing to shed their own blood. So this is one of those things of like, okay, it's it's the older establishment, you know, somehow, you know, grinding up the younger people for their own retention of power. And again, this is a, a story taking place in, you know, in, in, in behind the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe, a few years after liberalization was violently stamped out by the authorities. I understand sort of the subtext of that. I think it goes on in the world today. We can see it around us here in 2023 that people uh, you know, are are in, are invested to retain their own power, and at the expense of the the good of the world. I understand all of that, but that's the subtext, the text of what's literally going on here. I don't know what's happening. Like, are they actually doing some kind of black magic ritual? Are they drinking the blood? Are they what? Like, are they staying alive longer? Like, it's completely incomprehensible. Yeah. I mean, uh, like, what is this power wielding? Is this a, a metaphor? They talk about clubs elsewhere, but like, is there more going on? Um, uh, this is, uh, I will be careful not to do a, a super spoiler for another film, but it reminds me of the end of The Invitation, a more recent, I think that sure. was maybe 2014. I know The Invitation, absolutely. The, uh, yeah. yeah. I won't go into the details, but at the end of that film, there is something that gives you the feeling that this is larger than what you've just watched. Yes. I'll put it that way. Yes. And so, uh, but that does it, it doesn't explain everything. I, you know, because you're at the end of the film, as a matter of fact, I would have rather watched more of the orgy than had that stopped cold in its tracks for this guy to explain a bunch of stuff, which is what does happen in the movie. Yeah. But in this one, I really don't understand if they are, if there is like world power at stake here, if there is, I don't get how they're retaining it. No. And, and, and or how they're wielding it. How are yeah. they wielding it even? Like I don't they know. don't even control Prague. They don't control the newspaper. They don't control <laughs> the, uh, they, they certainly don't control the trains or means of economic production. My goodness. It's yeah. Uh, it's it, 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 so yeah. I, I, then Greg is told that, that, that his body is going to be found and he is going to thought to be dead, but his mind will work even after the point that he's buried. And I'm like, why? What's the point of that? Like, if you're going to kill him, just kill him. Like, why this? Why this whole thing where we then snap back to the present where Greg is in the hospital about to be autopsied? Uh, apparently, anybody can go to an autopsy in, in Prague because Jessica shows up there. And Professor Cartling is about to cut into him when two things happen. Greg realizes that Cartling was the man in the glasses at the ceremony, his big ornate glasses, and Greg's hand starts to move, and Cartling holds it down out of view of the audience and starts cutting as Jessica starts screaming. And I'm just like, she can't see the hand moving. Why is no, she starting to she scream? Can't. She thinks he's dead. It's is it just that you know? Hey, don't go to the autopsy of your friend, which I suppose is good advice. No, she's she is screaming like Donald Sutherland at the end of Philip Kaufman's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. This is not a this is not the scream of oh I can't take that my friend is dead and they're being autopsied. Right. It is the scream of someone who is seeing their friend murdered in front of them, and it makes absolutely no sense. 
which like I don't need everything to make rock solid logic sense all the time but this whole movie to me feels predicated upon our big twist is going to be so awesome yeah that retroactively you will decide that you liked the rest of this movie and i i think a lot a lot of people who do twist endings think this way right but the problem is is i just had my 80 minutes or 85 minutes of what actually happened and there is just no twist that's going to retroactively make the rest of this movie better. Yeah. You can show the rest of the movie in a different light, but that, like, uh, anyway, right? Uh, that's my pet peeve. My pet peeve with the Twisteroonies. Yeah, no, I I agree. Yeah, and I I gotta say, I think this is probably the strangest film that we'll watch as part of this series. And and I don't I don't necessarily think it quite works. That said, it does feel in a lot of ways like a precursor to Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. There are interesting ideas in this movie. Yes, yeah, there absolutely are, but it doesn't quite it doesn't quite hold together. And I don't understand the text text. Um, you know, it's the subtext. I think I get. But the text text, like what are they literally doing, is still a mystery to me. Uh, Aldo Lado followed Night of the Short Glass Dolls, Short Night of the Glass. I keep because that 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 title yeah. is nonsense. So I keep transposing the words Glass Dolls of the Short Night. Could be I don't know. Could be anything. Uh, Short Night of the Glass Dolls with another Giallo. This one is a bit more conventional, although nevertheless unusual. From 1972, this is. Who saw her die? Aldo Lado, Rudiger von Spies again, uh, Massimo Divac, and Francesco Borelli, Who Saw Her Die, stars former James Bond George Lazenby, former Bond villain Adolfo Silly, and should have been a Bond girl Anita Strindberg. Uh, and the film opens with some uh, with some idyllic shots of ski slopes and beautiful winter vistas. And I couldn't help think of Lazenby's one Bond film, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is one of my favorites, and is a snowbound alpine setting. But then we cut to the a young girl playing in the snow, and she's being watched by a figure in a black veil. And when the girl is briefly away from her governess, the black-veiled figure, often in POV shots behind the veil, which is very effective, yeah. murders the girl with a rock, like literally bashes her head in with a rock and then frantically buries her in the snow. All of this to the soundtrack of a children's choir, which is both beautiful and dread-inducing. And holy shit, this movie doesn't fuck around. No, and that's, um, yeah, Ennio again with the score. Although I yeah. think they list in the credits, there was another person who did, at least I think uh, was the uh, choral master or the whatever. Cor- yeah, the choir, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the, the score in this one is amazing. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, also, just from the opening sequence that you described, when you watch this, it feels like Aldo has made 50 films between uh, <laughs> yeah. Short Night of the Glass Dolls and this one. Because I, for all of the, the stuff that I was bagging on with Short Night of the Glass Dolls, none of that exists here. None of it. These movies came out less than a year apart. Yeah, and, and it this is has the feel of a... 
you know, totally in control director who's doing really interesting things visually, who has the money to back it. Uh, and the, the, the locations, and I know we're not to Venice yet, but we will get yeah. there. The, the locations in this movie, everything about this movie visually and directorially feels like 180 and of like just miles and miles better. It's, it's absolutely it's much more stylish, uh, even though it's not high society. Absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely. Um, 100%. We jump ahead about four years where sculptor Franco Sapiri, played by George Lazenby, is separated from his wife Elizabeth, played by Anita Strindberg, and is living in Venice, Italy, where he works as a sculptor. Uh, and his daughter, Roberta, is coming to stay with him, and almost immediately, a figure in a black veil starts stalking her. And first of all, I just want to say, Lazenby, first of all, Lazenby is very good in this movie. Yes. Uh, he looks very different than his turn as Bond. He's got this longish hair and a drooping mustache, and he's got a very thin build. Like, it's not the muscular build that even he had in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And, and honestly, it raises the question of how might things have gone if he had continued to play Bond into the 70s? Uh, that is a whole other podcast that I could do. But I wanted to at least raise the question. I also want to mention that his voice was dubbed by American actor Michael Forrest, who science fiction fans may remember played the god Apollo on an episode of the original Star Trek. Um, so it's just, just, just to put that out there. And we meet some of the other people in Franco's art world who are basically all one type of creep or another. There's Serafian, played by Adolfo Selly, who is his like his patron and and the art dealer, yeah. and it, who is a dead ringer for Henry Kissinger, I think. In this thing, it's it's very bizarre. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's totally. I mean, I can't help think of him as Emilio Largo in Thunderball, but yeah, and now that you say oh, it, sure. he yeah. totally looks like Henry Kissinger. And uh, you have uh, a couple other friends. He's got like he's got this journalist friend who's kind of creepy. He likes to stroke Roberta's hair uh, in a way that feels decidedly not normal. Like that's weird, man. Uh, he's got another friend who's got a creepy scar. That's weird. And he's got another. There's like a local priest who's running a charity auction, and uh, all of it's kind of weird. Like uh, uh, Seraphian gives Roberta an Aquarius pendant to wear. And in the Zodiac, Aquarius is not only the water bearer, which is interesting because you're in Venice, but also represents female sexual liberation. This girl's like 10 or something. I have trouble telling how old people are. It's just like, it's, it's just a kid. It's a kid. Come on, man. That's weird. She's elementary school age. Yes. Something like that. It's, it's certainly, you know, don't give her a symbol of female sexual liberation. It feels like it's a couple of years too early for that. Yeah. And it's not the, it's not the last uh, one of these that we will see handed out in this movie either. Oh yeah. No, it's weird. It's weird stuff. And basically everyone in Venice is a suspicious creep. That's, that's what, that's what it, uh, and, and I got to say, the first act of this movie does an incredible job at cultivating a sense of dread and, and just this impending, inevitable dread. And it's contrasted with uh, scenes of Franco as this sort of loving and attentive father. Like he's it's like, oh, there's like the relationship he has with his daughter is is really, you know, like it, it feels warm and real. Yeah. And, uh, but you punctuate that every now and again with some more veil cam stuff. Yep. You get some close calls. I would like to call out that uh, this time, no black leather gloves. They are the actual black lace gloves on the killer that we yes. see at, at a couple points. 
you know, there are, uh, you know, I'll pick the net just quickly and I'll forget about it. Uh, there are a few times where Franco clearly would have seen this person yeah. given where they put the, the POV of the camera, like looking straight at him and his daughter. But Franco it just is, uh, you know, he's, he's, an, he's an artist. He's in his own world. You know, he does. He's, you know, he's thinking about his mistress. <laughs> yeah. Well, he does. He does do something colossally stupid. Um, when he leaves Roberta playing with a group of other kids to go have sex with his lover. And honestly, who does that? Like it's the most, it's just what's more fucked up is he doesn't go back for her or, or seem to realize she's not there. I don't know if like there was a scene cut or something. Cause it, the next thing after we see him, he's like working in his studio and he just seems oblivious to the fact that Roberta's not there until he realizes Roberta's not there. It's a little straight. It's like, it's odd. And I wonder if, if there was something, cause it feels disjointed in that. Way. It does just in the editing. I felt that just story wise and in the world that he had expected she was out playing with the neighborhood kids and that normally she'd be back around dinner time. You know, the, the whole boot right, the kid okay, out. Okay, sure. They go, and that he was so deep in his work that it got later than he would have. And that's when he realized. So he, and then once he realizes she's not there, like he starts frantically searching Venice for her and he stops in the local church, which has been converted into a gymnasium. And, and it's, it's really a weird because it's like this ornate, oh, yeah. beautiful room where people are playing basketball and there's like basketball hoops up. And it's, there's something about it that's kind of odd and you know, like there's something, there's a disconnect there that makes everything feel strange. Oh, for sure. And this is the, uh, because this is the lower class. This is what they get. The basketball in, in the redressed, uh, you know, uh, it looks like a church property. Uh, and then we get an echo later. We, I won't talk about it too deep now, but where you get the same thing, except it's the fencing class. Yes. The fencing club. In the redressed kind of church ornate, you know, building, uh, which is clearly not for the lower classes. Cause this movie, as you said, this really does play a lot with the, you know, uh, Franco's in that world of, of the working class, but because he's an artist, he has touch points with the upper class world. And this is where, uh, you know, some of the conflict will come into in this movie in a way that is both textual and subtext. Absolutely. And I understood both. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> up to a point. <laughs> there's a, there's uh, a now, point. Uh, up to a point because there's there, uh, we'll get into it, but th- there's a there's a mystery element. There's like a conspiracy at the heart of this that I I spent a lot of time today trying to unravel. Like I I I have I have the bullet points on the mystery, and I think I get it, but I still don't get it. Um, the next day, after Franco's been searching for Roberta, her body turns up floating in the water near the docks. And uh, that is that's where the movie sort of turns, and that's that's a chilling. Sequence oh yeah, there. it's really it effective. is so well done. I I feel because I was I was being a jerk and and uh, making fun uh, during the last movie uh, that I have to give the flowers. Man, oh man, it is such an affecting. It sequence. really is. And, and this whole first uh, like act, I guess, of the movie, um, it is so unlike a lot of other jolly. Um, it is so, there's such a mood. It's so affecting. Yeah. Um, you're not dealing with a lot of outward uh, thriller or horror elements quite yet outside of that opening uh, murder. And it's it's just really a, a fantastic movie 
Uh, and but that does, as you say, it switches gears at this it, point. Yeah, it's going to switch gears here, and you know because uh, well, first of all, let's Roberta's mother Elizabeth, who's played by by uh, Anita Strindberg, arrives in Venice to bury her daughter, and and I I will say this: the movie takes on a, an air of palpable grief that you can absolutely feel that is totally affecting. Um, and with the estranged couple in Venice wrestling with the death of their child, it's hard not to draw comparisons to a film that would come out about a year and a half later, Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now. And, and both of these films use the haunting architecture of Venice to great effect. They both take time to examine the emotional fallout that grieving parents would face. Uh, in fact, there's a scene in No in Who Saw Her Die, which immediately brought to mind one of the more famous scenes in Don't Look Now, uh, when Franco and Elizabeth channel their grief into sex. And there's a very similar, very famous scene in Don't Look Now, although the tone is decidedly different. Um, in in Don't Look Now, the sex scene with Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie is it, it feels a bit restorative. It's them. It's sort of them beginning the process of healing after the the, the accidental death of their daughter. The the the, the big difference in, in between those two movies is in Don't Look Now, uh, the daughter dies just as a as a, it was an accident. It just an accident happens, and she here there's a mystery. It's a murder, and it's a mystery. So there's a difference there. Um, but so here, the the sex scene feels almost like it's grieving. It's like it's. It's part. It's not. It's not trying to move past the grief. It is the grief, and and there's tears down Elizabeth's face, and it's just, it's it's incredibly affecting and sad. Yeah, and, and this is really the last moment that a uh, husband and wife will actually be close for the rest yeah. of this film. Yeah, uh, because they uh, they're torn asunder by the death because their reactions are so different. Hers. Because and she's been away, it's it's you know more than hinted at that their marriage was not necessarily so wonderful. They were I got the impression they were separated. Yeah, and it seems like now this death has thrown that into relief for her, and she wants to be closer and and kind of salvage uh, the family that she has now. Um, whereas he just goes on a much different path. He is determined to find out who killed his daughter, and he. Uh, he absolutely goes for it with with one hundred percent gusto, just trying to find you know to find the killer. That's his mission, uh, and he goes. He talks. He finds out um, that there was a similar murder of a child about a year earlier, not the one from the opening scene, but another one. And he talks to the girl's father, who's kind of reticent to say anything. Um, I should mention the father. The, the father that he talks to works in a Venetian glass factory, and there is some absolutely hypnotic shots of glass manufacturing, which I just I could watch I could watch that for for it's fascinating. And and frankly, given the film's James Bond connections, I have to think the pieces being created here are all destroyed during the Venetian sequence in Moonraker a few years later. <laughs> oh sure, sure. But and this feels like picking up on the some of the best of giallo tropes, right? Where you're going to go, once you're going to have to do the shoe leather, you go, oh, the father was a glass blower, so you get some amazing stuff there. Then we're going to do the the, the semi-comedy bit, where now he's going to go somewhere where a guy is going to demand that you play ping pong with him in, before he'll talk. It's so weird. Oh, yeah, he goes. And first of all, I thought when I first saw it, first of all, you see that person 
shooting like birds with a like a BB gun, and I thought it was a woman, and then I was like, oh, it's a dude, and and the guy, you know, he's like, oh, you got to play ping pong with me, or I won't talk. And it's so weird, um, but it's interesting, weird, and and the guy actually gives information that the girl's father was helped to find work again after the the loss of his daughter uh, by a lawyer. Uh, the, this lawyer who may have a predilection for young girls, and it's uh, the guy, the guy that he plays ping pong. I noticed in the credits is just credited as man who plays table tennis. Well, an apt description. Uh, man who gives you Mr. Bonayuti's name. Uh, Bonayuti yes. is the lawyer. Yes, and uh, and and he's involved with Seraphin, and Seraphin's secretary is and mistress Genova is also. He's involved with the guy with the scar, and honestly, it makes Venice feel like a very small town. Like everybody's kind of interconnected, um, and everybody is behaving super suspiciously. I mean, I'm figuring yeah. at this point that like. <laughs> Oh, it's got to be it's got to be the Bond villain because he's a Bond villain, you know, or is that what they want you to think? Yeah, I mean, pretty much at this point, and frankly, you can't even you can't even necessarily write off the the wife. No, you know, is it all an act? Because she she certainly uh, came back at the right time slash wrong time. There's a sequence at this point where she is menaced by a black gloved figure in the apartment which turns out to be the <laughs> housekeeper. Like it's a, it's a full on red herring sequence. It's like, Oh my god! I goodness. love the Giallo cleaning service. Yes. <laughs> I, Cause these, I can see them like scraping tub gunk away with like straight razors, <laughs> uh, using, uh, like, a, you know, uh, chicken wire to like clean drains. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and all of these, just these black gloves. It's like, it's, black it's amazing. Um, and, and this is where Franco, he goes to the fencing, he goes to the fencing scene and, yes. and, and he, he talks to Genova, uh, who tez, says that she has information, uh, uh, something important about Serafian and, and she wants Franco to meet her at the progressive cinema at 10 PM. Uh, but, but in classic Giallo fashion, now I got to work out for you. Franco's running a little late and, uh. And 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 the killer murders Genova just before uh, he gets there, strangling her in her seat. And there's a scene where blood's coming out of her mouth. And she's being strangled. It's very effective. Uh, I do want to know what they're showing at the Progressive Cinema because it's a topless review thing of some kind. It's a really odd movie to pick. <laughs> I guess I, uh, it's it's so bizarre. Um, yeah. yeah, it is not uh, not the movie I would have picked, but. Um, <laughs> It's no, it's not. But it's it's uh, it's interesting. Like the whole sequence is well done. Like Franco sits down right next to Genova and puts his arm around her before he realizes she's dead. Yeah, because when he sits down and the killer's still there right behind. Yeah, he doesn't because he doesn't realize she's dead. He sits down right behind, and then the killer kind of scrambles away and gets away in the crowd um, before before he can kind of get hands on him. Uh, and and and. Uh, it's really it's 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 really interesting. And, and now at this point in the movie, it becomes a little convoluted. So so he, I boiled it down to the salient point. The lawyer Bariuti has an envelope in his safe from Ginevra to be opened in the event of her death, which he does. And inside is a picture of the little girl murdered in the opening sequence. Bariuti sends this envelope to Franco through the mail. 
despite the fact that Franco was in the room with him two minutes earlier, he's probably not gotten past the front door. Dude, just go call out the window and be like, hey, come back. I got something for you. But no, he sends it to him through the mail. So that's going to arrive a little bit later. Um, And then the detective investigating Ginevra's murder asks Serafian if he knows someone named Francois Russo. But but Serafian says he doesn't. And the detective shows him a locket that was found near the body in the, in the cinema uh, with a picture of a red-haired woman inside. And Serafin says he's never seen that picture before. Franco breaks into a house. I still don't know whose house he was breaking into. That is still a complete mystery to me. But he's knocked out. <laughs> and uh, he's knocked out and then just left there. It's not like, uh, you know, he, he kind of comes to eventually. And um, the killer murders Bonaiuti, the lawyer, and releases his massive collection of birds. Uh, he's got this massive, like, a, a like person-tall cage of birds, and the killer stabs him and lets the birds out. And then, and then we have uh, we have a, a sequence where Franco, having recovered from being attacked, follows Serafian down near the fog-shrouded docks of Venice. This sequence is amazing. I love all the foreground background stuff with him going after him is it's this is top notch like oh so fun. Absolutely. And and the foggy Venice locations, the abandoned rundown buildings, um it, it, one of the I read one of them was like a, I think a flower like a like factory where they'd make flour and now he's like a Hilton hotel or something in real life like oh, that's uh, but like it's it's you have this this in this building, you have Franco, you have uh, Serafian, you have an unknown figure all chasing each other through this abandoned multi-level industrial space, and it is fantastic. Uh, and then there's a man on crutches lurking around there too. We've seen him a couple other times, yeah. but we don't know who the man of the young man on crutches is. So the unknown figure attacks Franco, but the Guy on crutches shoots at him and scares him off. And crutches guy turns out to be Francois Rousseau, and who is moreover Geneva's adult son. So there we go. That's that's I just it, the bullet points because there's this it, this conspiracy is very complex, and I, it took me a while to put it together. <laughs> yeah, I uh, and the the thing is that where it lands, I'm I'm not sure that any of it matters let alone makes sense but we'll, no i don't we'll get there on so. the other side of the line which i know we're very close we to. are very close to the line now what i will mention is that so francois rousseau turns out to be ginevra's adult son and he is trying to figure out who murdered his mother which admittedly is understandable uh but all he's come up with is the film Oh my <sighs> goodness. Yep. So he play he takes Franco back to his place and he puts on this film. And it is what you might call an early version of a sex tape on black and white silent film. It shows Serafian Boniuti, Ginevra, and a fourth person sitting in a chair whose face we don't see. And they all seem to be engaging in a little bit of light gender play. Bonayuti has lipstick on, Ginevra's dressed in men's clothes, and and I think it's all supposed to come out as very perverse, but frankly, like the so-called strange vice of Mrs. Ward, 
isn't necessarily so, as long as all parties are consenting. And and Francois, the son, says, oh, they must have been forcing her to do all those things. Uh-huh. Yeah, pal, you keep telling yourself that. Maybe you're the creepo for watching a stag film with your mom. In it. Yeah, as you say, it's a very tame stag t- film. It, uh, it it plays like Tuesday night on Blue Sky. I'm like, <laughs> it's nothing. It's nothing. <laughs> Uh, we are available at Blue Sky and Get Me Another Pod. I'm uh, just going to throw yeah, that out there. <laughs> as are a lot, of, uh, a lot of other folks who are on Blue Sky, too. Uh, check your filters, kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, we should probably put in the spoiler line here. If you, if you want to not know who, uh, who the, the, the final solution of this, of this film is, we'll skip ahead to the end. Um, so we get this confrontation in a darkened room between the killer and, and Serafian. And clearly Serafian knows who the killer is and why he's killing. But we don't find out. Nope. Like it's, 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 they're talking around it a lot. He's like, oh, and then, and then Franco shows up. And there's a recording of the killer confessing that he killed the girls because they had red hair, just like, quote, their mother, and would have grown up to become a whore like her. And Franco finds Serafian dead. And then the dude with the scar, whose name I can't remember, is there. And he says that while Franco's beating him up, he says, no, no, the killer is Serafian's brother. Because they both had lockets with the picture of the red-haired woman. I, it took me a second watching to get that 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 it was the killer and Serafian that were brothers, and that they were both the children of the red-haired woman in the locket. Meanwhile, Elizabeth goes to get the mail, and she gets the envelope that Boniuti sent, and the killer attacks and chases her, and she takes refuge in a nearby church. And the killer follows her there, and Franco arrives just in time to unmask, or I suppose unveil... Unveil. ...that the killer is the priest, Father James, who I kind of mentioned earlier, a way back. Yeah, Father James and Franco struggle, and then a knocked-over candelabra lights Father James's cloak on fire, and he goes up like a Roman candle and dives headfirst out the window. It is an amazing moment. A literal Roman candle? Dun, dun, dun. Or a Venetian candle. Venetian. <laughs> oh, see, this, uh, I should have thought of that. Yeah. Uh, it's and, and I love that Lotto uses the shot of him crashing out the window like five oh, yeah. times. Like it's. I could have watched it ten more, frankly. It's, it's a great shot. I got to say, Anita Strindberg has not had much to do in this movie, but she gives a superb bit of acting. As Father James's robe catches on fire and she gives this slight smile, it is fantastic. I am on the Anita Strindberg train. I Again, I just need a time machine the, to, to make some Cleo DuPont mysteries with Anita Strindberg. Oh, for sure. Oh, my God. And, uh, and at this point, now that we're, we're past uh, who the killer is, that uh, looking backward. Yeah. Um. Much like in other movies, they had to sell how blind somebody was in a way that made you know they weren't. In this movie, they they really sell that because that there is a veil and, and black lace gloves that clearly everyone refers to it as a, a, a female killer. Yeah, it's clearly about a dude. it. 
it's it's yeah those hands are not the hands of a woman and admittedly i had that thought at the beginning i was like oh could this be a a a, a male killer dressed up like a woman in there now I, I gotta say, if the idea of a priest killing children before they could grow up to become sinners sounds familiar to our listeners, it's because it is the basically the same concept featured in a movie we talked about earlier in this series, Lucio Fulci's Don't Torture a Duckling. Uh, before anyone cries ripoff, this film came out only four months before Fulci's film. And honestly, I think it's just a case of simultaneous invention. I think it's just they were on the, the same track at the same time. Do you think that it's possible that Italian artists had things to say about Catholicism? I think it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. I think it's very, very possible. Yeah. Although it's also possible that one of them <laughs> went full force and the other one pulled a punch. Well, there's one last twist to be had. As Franco and Elizabeth leave the scene, Franco's reporter friend chases after them and gives the following line. You didn't hear the end of it. The inspector says Father James was an imposter. He wasn't a priest at all. Well, thank goodness for that. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship is a terrible last line to a movie. This is what you want. What, what I also love is that he is so happy about it. You know, the, the reporter friend is so happy about yeah. it. He's like, oh, it's thank goodness it's not actually a priest. It's just an imposter. He's like so relieved. Yeah, we're seeing Franco and Elizabeth like off in a boat of doom sailing down to like their death on the river because they are spiritually dead. The fact that it wasn't actually a priest who did it, just an imposter priest. Like, oh my God. Now, according to Lotto, this ending was imposed on him by censors. Oh, I believe that. I I I will read you a quote from an interview that I was reading. Reading with Aldo Lado, quote, you have to realize what a Catholic country Italy was in those days and how much power was wielded by the church. The producers told me that we either insert this false ending or the film will not be distributed. It was as simple as that. If you know me, you'll have no doubt whatsoever what my attitude towards this was. I've been saying for decades that one day the truth will come out about all this sexual abuse in the church and look where we are today. Yeah, I mean it it, it I mean it's it's powerful. I I can't imagine you could. It's not even a director's cut. You can just cut that stupid line. Yeah. You can cut the friend running back. Just have them sail off. Do the real ending. Just, just, just restore the end. I mean, you know, whatever might have been there, just cut it. It'll be a little truncated because you're not going to have the dude running out. But, um, <laughs> but it also makes you wonder because four months later, Don't Torture a Duckling comes out, and it makes me wonder how afraid were the censors of Lucio Fulci? Yeah, that they did not make him cut it, or what? Like, how did he get that through? But, but admittedly, as we talked about in 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 the Don't Torture Duckling episode, that movie. Struggled with distribution and only got a very limited oh, distribution. Yeah. Like it wasn't, you know, and it never it never played internationally. It, so it, yeah. it it may have been that you know Fulci had enough 
juice to kind of push that through but but the film paid for it at the box office yeah only so it, they couldn't get full distribution yeah. yeah i i forgot our own episode <laughs> from a few weeks ago oh my god that's my memento brain there so we go. yeah well it's been it's the you know the giallo world that we've immersed ourselves in is uh it, it's playing tricks on the mind at this point, like uh, as you say. I do remember the beginning of this podcast where I said I had gone crazy. <laughs> so I there, there we have it. We've that's come full I, that's the only explanation. <laughs> uh, and it's it's interesting because this movie, it's it's. I really like aspects of it. There's parts of it that are a little too like the the. I still don't quite understand with the folks and their their little orgy on film is is having to do with the murder. It feels like those are completely unconnected things. That yes, it, it feels coincidental. My perfect analogy, Chris. Oh. Is imagine that the Corleone crime family had a cousin, <laughs> Pamela Voorhees. <laughs> and you spent an entire film unraveling the Corleone crime family's <laughs> crimes only to discover Mrs. Voorhees just kind of killed everybody. And that's who really, and she's kind of connected to the family, but has nothing to do with what the family does. Yeah. yeah that's no, what that's, this is. Yeah, that the, is absolutely. The, the conspiracy, like whatever drug running is happening with the art from Beirut to Italy. None of that has anything really to do with the killings or the motivation of the killer no. or who the killer is the no. only connection to it is the fact that is that that um, uh seraphin is is the brother of uh of of the killer and i guess was was protecting him for a time and didn't you know uh you know didn't want his brother to go to yeah. jail you know but you like, got a little you got a little art dealer bird with the crystal plumage protection there right? sure like, it's but classic. like it wasn't it yeah. wasn't it didn't have anything to do with you know the stag films and all that other stuff yeah, or the and I, you know, they they don't go hard with the drug thing, but you like drugs. Well, you get happen, the impression clearly. that it's yeah. not, you know, that they're not just bringing over his sculptures. You know that it's, no. uh, you know, I mean, I mean, it's uh, and obviously part of the, the 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 interesting aspect of this movie is that it, it's it is so reminiscent of two movies that would come out shortly after don't look now and don't torture a duckling and they you know the venice setting the 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 catholic church aspect uh and it's just interesting that it is it's it's uh, those aspects would be echoed in other films uh so quickly you know at, at that time yeah i mean and it really uh less so don't look now but if you look at don't torture a duckling the idea of not just the catholic uh you know church but the power structures of society of which yeah. that's part, but it's not the only part, right? How those kind of come in and, and crush the regular folks. Oh, um, it's like frankly, club 99 so, pulling the strings. Yeah. Which is interesting that you see that theme <clears throat> is something he's clearly interested in. So I think that brings us to the end of today's episode. Again, they're, they're interesting films. I, I think in some ways they both have, uh, they both have some problems. I think short night of the glass dolls is kind of a slog, but I mean, I wouldn't say don't check it out. Like if you're interested in Giallo and you're interested in Aldo Lado as a director, like it, it's, it's an interesting starting point. Um, but I would say for Aldo Lado, um, I would say I would recommend who saw her die. Yes, it's not perfect. Just keep um, keep there, a, a list of 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 the 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 
characters and you know like keep a clue sheet so you know who's who and what what's what yes. like that's keep the clue checklist and that that'll uh but it's uh and in many ways it's a beautiful film too oh it and, is it's, and, a be- and, it's a beautifully shot film absolutely and it, it's heart-wrenching in the beginning and it, it, it comes around to the heart-wrenching again once you get through enough of the shoe leather so it, i agree it doesn't it, it comes back and connects with the the human center and totally. really heartbreaking way uh i think that that brings us to the end of today's episode next week sees the return of the strange vice of mrs ward's star edwidge fennec in two films the first from director sergio martino carries what might have the greatest title in cinema history your vice is a locked room and only i have the key. And the second reunites Miss Fennec with her Strange Vice co-star George Hilton in The Case of the Bloody Iris. Again, thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannico and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, and Blue Sky, both on Tuesday nights as well as other nights uh, at Get Me Another Pod. And if you like the show, Please tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell those creepy folks from your local chapter of Club 99 about it. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when studios say, get me another.